Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. I am excited to have you here today. I will go ahead and first apologize for my scratchy voice. What an inconvenience ailment right now. We're speaking today with Elizabeth Sagren, Dr. Elizabeth Sagren. Elizabeth Sagren is a senior staff writer at Fast Company whose work has appeared in a range of publications from The Atlantic to Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, Salon. Her book, The Rocket Years, was published in 2020. And I'm excited to chat with her today because we're speaking in specific about an article she published in early February titled, President Biden Appoint a Fashion Czar. And I read this article on a lot of different instances because there was so much press and momentum around it after its publication. It received a lot of attention and there was a lot of support for it. I saw so many breakdowns of the article afterwards, videos explaining it a lot of social media activity around the article. So it was a really impactful piece. And I'm excited to chat with her because we talk about what that means, a fashion czar, what it means to have national regulation of the fashion industry, what regulation exists, what kind of policy mechanisms could exist for this to be a more regulated industry. And overall, it's a really interesting conversation that touches on garment workers. We talk about the globalization of fashion, fast fashion, the secondhand economy, what it means for secondhand or other quote-unquote sustainable trends to be trendy. Elizabeth, or Liz as she goes by, she received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, in the field of South and Southeast Asian studies with a designated emphasis in women, gender, and sexuality. So we do talk about her background and her education because I'm also so interested in the fact that she is a global nomad. She grew up in Brussels, Paris, Singapore, Jakarta, London, all before moving to New York City. So we are getting into a lot of different things, her background, her career, the globalization, and how all of these really intersectional issues touch on the fashion industry, and again, how it could be better regulated. So I'm thrilled for you to listen to this conversation. I think that she drops a lot of interesting food for thought. She's clearly understood this issue so thoroughly given her background and given, of course, the fact that she is the global expert in what it means to appoint a fashion czar and why that is a completely reasonable demand to make of the new administration. And she has this very casual intelligence about the way that she speaks, which I love so much. She is so deep and well-versed in this issue that she's very good at pulling different issues of the fashion crisis together as she explains the need for reform and policy and advocacy work. So I'm thrilled for you to listen to this conversation. I hope you really, really enjoy it. If you enjoy the conversation, please go ahead and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And you can also connect with me on social media at Eco Chic Podcast. All my links are always in the show notes. And with that, I hope you have a great day and I will talk to you soon. Enjoy the episode. I am thrilled to chat with you today, and I would love to just start off hearing a little bit about your background and your upbringing and, and this nomadic lifestyle that you're a part of. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, indeed, a big part of <laughs> my story is just all the different countries that I got to live in growing up. Um, I'm half Chinese and half Indian, and my family is from Singapore, Malaysia, so in Southeast Asia. But my dad worked for an airline when I was growing up, and so I spent my childhood in all, <laughs> all, all kinds of countries around the world. So I spent my early childhood 
in um, Manila and the Philippines. And then I did my sort of a preschool in Brussels, Belgium. And then I spent all of elementary school in Paris. And then in middle school, I got to go back to Southeast Asia for a few years um, because my dad was posted back to the, to the head station, which was really weird and interesting for me because, you know, I'm from that part of the world, but I had never lived there. And it was just, it's always been really interesting trying to figure out, you know, where I fit in and what my identity is. But after a few years, I went to high school in Jakarta, uh, Indonesia. And so I really had this experience of living in all these different countries. Um, I went to largely American schools in those places, you know, international schools that had a, a U.S. curriculum. And so when it was time to go to college, it made the most sense for me to come to the U.S. because it was the education system I was most familiar with. And so I really came to the U.S. for the first time when I went to college. So I went to school in New York, Columbia. And that was also really weird for me because, you know, I have this American accent from all the schools that I went to and I sort of like understood parts of the culture, but I had like never, <laughs> never set foot in America. Right. I remember going to a drugstore my first couple of weeks of school and just being flabbergasted by how many products <laughs> exist in America, because for real, you know, like in other countries, you don't have like a selection of like 5,000 shampoos, you know? Um, so anyway, for like my first year in America, I was just like marveling at how many different shampoo options I had. That's so funny. That's so funny. Well, I think that's also so interesting to think about, of course, the intersectionality of everything that you write about recently. I also have to ask you about your graduate studies in <laughs> okay. South and Southeast Asian <laughs> studies, because that seems also quite different from what you're doing now. But I have to imagine that there's a link. Totally. So I'm so glad that you asked me this question about, you know, my background, because really getting my PhD. So what happened was when I was at Columbia, part of what I wanted to do was kind of learn more about my roots, which was actually very funny to my family members, because, you know, here I was like in the United States, like getting an education, but like all I wanted to do was learn about where I came from. So I took all these classes in Asian history and um, even learned the language of my ancestors, which is Tamil, uh, who, people from, from South India speak this language. And so it just kind of made sense for me to get a PhD in South and Southeast Asian studies because um, I was so passionate about it and I, and I had all this knowledge and I was really excited about it. So I went to UC Berkeley where I got a PhD in South and Southeast Asian studies and that allowed me to continue traveling because part of my work was doing field work all over the world. I spent a lot of time in Indonesia and India. And after all of that, I got this PhD and, you know, your, your listeners are probably a lot smarter than me because I really believed that I could get an academic job in this very, very uh, specialized subfield. And there were literally like no jobs in my area. Um, and so then I really had to think about what it is I wanted to do uh, with my life. And I think the thing that I like the most, you know, the skill that I like using the most is writing. Um, and that was, you know, the thing that I really enjoyed doing in my PhD program. I loved writing my dissertation. I loved doing all of this research and synthesizing it and turning it into, you know, a form of written work. I like producing writing, right? Like that, that's the product I like producing. And so I decided to go into journalism and, you know, I, I got this amazing job at Fast Company that I've been, you know, that I've, I've been doing for the last seven years. And as time went on, 
you know, I just was really interested in the fashion industry. And I think part of what attracts me to the sector is that it is such a global industry that relies on, you know, workers all over the world. And in some cases, like in the very countries that I've spent time, right? Like I went to high school in Jakarta and I remember driving by factories where people were making clothes for, you know, Nike and and all of these different companies. And, you know, there are all these stories about sweatshops, right? With, with a lot of different companies. And especially like in the, in the nineties and the early two thousands, there was a lot of conversation about that. And I just remember experiencing that whole, you know, that whole conversation very differently living in Indonesia, because, you know, obviously at the time, especially there was a lot of poverty in Indonesia and there were a lot of young people who couldn't, who couldn't afford to go to school. And, you know, they were living in little villages and working in a factory gave them an option to, to, to earn some money that they wouldn't otherwise have had. And a lot of these workers were, you know, were like in their teens, like maybe 16 or 17, which I think, you know, somebody who who has access to a good education here in the United States or who might think is like unfair, right? But I, I really think, and I'm not advocating for, for people to, I think these are very complex problems where, you know, we really need to support entire communities in these in these countries. But but from, you know, for me, this this question of the sweatshop issue, it, you know, like I was able to sort of see it play out firsthand, right? And see all of the different things that were there that were involved and what would motivate somebody to work in, a, in one of these sweatshops and how much of that was coercion and how much of that was coercion from the company and how much of that was coercion just from just their poverty, right? And and neither of those are good reasons to to be working. But anyway, so when I see a lot of these different stories about factories overseas, you know, you know, I think of the people that I've met in these countries. Wow. Well, tangential, I listened to this TED Talk probably six or seven years ago when I was in college that really stuck with me. And it was a story about sweatshops. And I tried to find it and it was so long ago I can never find this TED Talk again. But it was a journalist interviewing people in sweatshops in various countries and kind of unpacking this question of are sweatshops always bad? Are we exploiting people, et cetera? And by no means am I advocating for sweatshops either. Right. But right. a lot of the responses she got were, this is the best thing I can do in this community. This is the most profitable job that I can get given my circumstances. And it's quite unfortunate to have to consider when we're advocating for fair wages overseas, there, there's so much more to it than just simply wages. It's about access and education and opportunity. And there's so much kind of systematic work that needs to be done to be a truly ethical fashion system. Totally. And I think the, the one thing that I learned throughout my education is that situations are so complex, right? And it's just really always a bad idea to impose our way of seeing the world on a different community and on somebody else's experience. Because or my experience as somebody who, you know, lives in the United States where there's running water and where I, you know, I have a home and, you know, my, my, my daughter has access to public education, you know, it's hard for me to to put myself in a situation of somebody who's living in a different country. Um, and so that's why it's important for these countries to be working collaboratively with the workers there to, to figure out what they really need, right? Um, 
Is it for schools to be built? Like, is that what they can do to contribute to the community? Like what, what's going on? Is, are, is there a lot of like child marriage that's happening? Like what is going on in that community? And, you know, we can't just assume that they are thinking like us or that their problems are just like ours, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's an excellent segue to this global issue that you are advocating for some regulation on being the case for a fashion czar. And I shared with you before we started recording how much admiration I have for your piece and how when I initially heard the case for a fashion czar and when I initially read your article, I said, this is a great idea, but I just took it as an article and I said, okay, I'm going to sit with this for a little bit. And then I started seeing so much more advocacy and, and I started more deeply understanding the fact that there has never been true regulation around the fashion industry. There is an urgency to the fashion revolution. There's a lot of urgency around the globalization of of fashion. Like I just, I want to unpack the whole thing for you. So really quickly, give me a basic definition of a fashion czar. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the terminology is partly what made, uh, the article take off the way it did. Um, Basically, what I'm advocating for is for President Biden to appoint somebody to basically oversee the fashion industry, particularly in the crisis that it's in right now, and work collaboratively with the industry, as well as with multiple departments in the government to basically support consumers and and brands in their effort to make fashion more eco-friendly and more sustainable. And I think that the, the czar concept is really meaningful here because historically the U.S. government has appointed czars in moments of crisis. So in the past, we've had czars that have dealt with the AIDS crisis, with World War II, and now we have a czar dealing with the climate crisis, and we have two czars actually dealing with the cri- climate crisis, as well as one czar dealing with COVID. So I think czars are appointed during moments of crisis, right? And I think that everybody who works in fashion will tell you that the fashion industry is in a moment of crisis. It is a hugely polluting industry responsible for between four and 10% of global emissions. It's a major consumer of plastic, which is not biodegradable and which ends up in our waterways. It's responsible for 20% of the wastewater, the toxic wastewater um, and polluted water that ends up in the ocean. It's accelerating the degradation of the planet at an alarming rate. And so we are in a moment of crisis and I think appointing a czar would highlight that. Um, But also this crisis cannot be dealt with, you know, just through one single mechanism. And I think that that a lot of us who work in fashion or who who think about fashion, you know, we see lots of things happening, right? But they're all happening in little silos. There are people who are dealing with carbon emissions, like Gucci and Allbirds are very, you know, focused on that. There are other companies that are dealing with a plastic problem, but everybody's sort of attacking this, you know, in their corner, right? And there's no sense of like what the major priorities are, what we, what we should be focusing on, and there's no coordinated action. And that's exactly what, a, you know, a fashion czar could do. And so that's, that's what I'm advocating for. I appreciate that. Thank you for the breakdown. I think this bit about coordinated action is so important because as you were describing the fashion crisis as we have it today, I'm thinking, okay, well, 
could it be dealt with by the EPA? Okay, could it be dealt with by the Department of Labor? Or is this uh, an import-export problem? Like who is dealing with the fashion crisis? And you're completely right in saying that it has to be a coordinated effort. It has to be very interdepartmental. And it has mm-hmm. to be a standalone position that can consider all of these intersections, I suppose, of the fashion problem. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just really interesting because there are people in government who are regulating other big and polluting industries. So, you know, we have people who are paying attention to what's going on in the auto industry or in the oil sector, but nobody's really paying attention to fashion. And I I think that one reason for that might be that, you know, a lot of the fashion industry's pollution problem has really accelerated over the last 20 to 30 years um, with the rise of fast fashion. And I think that a lot of people who work in government or, or who are in positions of power tend to be older and frankly, like and, and men, right? Like older white men. And the fashion industry tends to target younger people, um, you know, especially fast fashion. And it also tends to target women. Women are like the dominant consumers in the fashion sector. And so I think that ju- like there's an entire segment of people who are in power who just are just totally blind to what's happening in the fashion industry. And so, and it's super frustrating because those of us who live in this world know that it's like a huge issue and it's like a major blind spot, right? To to the U.S. government. Absolutely. And it's interesting also to say it's not just a problem of women. There are a lot of people involved in this problem, but women are the primary consumers. Mm -hmm. And there has also been a lot of narrative lately about how fashion and garment workers equal pay when we talk about the ethics of fashion that's a feminist issue it's women who are working in a lot of these factories it's women who are the consumers there's so many women along the whole chain of the fashion crisis and also to think that everyone is truly a fashion consumer whether you're buying fast fashion or new fashion or you're buying it secondhand or you're buying it at a market in another country like There's so many points of entry, I suppose, for the fashion industry, whether you are a garment worker or a consumer, or there's just, everyone deals with it. Everyone deals with it. Totally. It's a, I think that it's important. Yeah. It's, it's important for people to know that, that there are millions of people working in the fashion sector around the world and the majority of them are women. Um, And that's because historically and today uh, the fashion industry tends to be an industry that women, where women can get jobs, right? It's it's somehow seen as like kind of a, a fe- as feminized work. Um, and so in, in many countries, it's like one of the few sectors where women can feel comfortable working, where there's like a large female workforce. So if you're a vulnerable woman, you know, it's something that you can do where, that you're allowed to do, you know, that you're allowed to earn money from. Um, and that within itself creates a lot of exploitation, right? There's, you know, we, we know of a lot of sexual harassment and uh, other terrible things that are happening there. Yeah. And, and then in terms of the consumers, I mean, yeah, for sure. Men are definitely, everybody's buying clothes. Like everybody has to, to buy clothes, but these industries tend to market more to women and, you know, women's clothes tend to go through, you know, t- tend to be more susceptible to trends. And so that they're constantly marketing at women. But yeah, I think that, you know, to the average, you know, 65 year old man in Congress, like it's just like, they just sort of think of this as like a marginal side issue. Right. Right. Almost frivolous. Yeah, seems, exactly. When we're talking like, about fashion. Meaning totally. Right. Interesting. If you were in a position to start advising President Biden, he got your letter and he was like, you know what, Liz, you're absolutely right. Let's appoint this person. And they had to outline some bullet points 
What would you say are the most glaring categories that need reformation from the fashion crisis? So the fashion industry we know is a major contributor to global carbon emissions. We don't actually know how much because nobody has bothered quantifying it, right? So we have a couple of estimates that range from between four and 10%, depending on how you calculate. So I think the first thing is for this fashion czar, for, for the government to do the work of helping to quantify the extent of this problem, right? The, the hard part here is that, you know, these are not all American companies, right? Like just with the climate crisis, carbon emissions affect the entire planet, right? And so it doesn't, almost doesn't matter where they're coming from. It's something that we need to be addressing together as a global community. But the same is true of fashion, right? It's, it's really important for companies to track their entire supply chain and quantify how much carbon they're emitting. And then I think it would be really important for companies to be regulated in some way in terms of their carbon footprint. Um, and so there, there are all kinds of like really creative ways of doing that. Um, so you could have companies quantify how much carbon they're emitting and then and then basically somehow like offset it, you know, by, by planting trees, by, by investing in regenerative agriculture, whatever. So Gucci, for instance, has done this and they've quantified their entire carbon emissions all the way to scope three emissions. So basically all, even all of their indirect sources of carbon, or like basically all of their suppliers, even I think even all the way down to the production of raw materials, which is very, very hard to do. But as a result, they are, they've, they're spending millions of, of euros uh, a year to offset these emissions through regenerative agriculture. But what's interesting about this is because they're aware of how much of their revenues are going back into paying for these offsets, it is incumbent on them to be reducing the amount of carbon they're emitting, right? So by definition, you're trying to do the best that you can to reduce it. So I think that this is just like a smart thing to do. Like if there is some way to make companies responsible for their carbon. And then I think another thing that would be really important to do is right now, public companies, you know, have to file uh, these documents about their their finances, right? I think that perhaps the thing that we could be doing is asking companies, specifically public companies, to to file some sort of paperwork that quantifies, that forces them to audit their supply chains and think about all of the ways, various forms of pollution that they're creating, and quantify that and talk about like what they you know what they're doing to mitigate that, and that way there's just more transparency. Consumers will understand what they're dealing with, but also investors can make, and, you know, and, and people who, you know, have shares in the company and like board members can make smarter decisions, basically can hold these companies to account, right? And, you know, the way that the companies need to be held to account for, you know, the, the, the financial uh, decisions that they're making, they, they also need to be held to account to, to these kind of um, environmental issues. So those are two two things that I think, you know, are policy related things that can be done. Wow. I really appreciate how thorough you've understood this problem. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, you are literally the expert in what it means to appoint a fashion czar. But I think that listening to you describe policy action items like that makes me realize how much bigger an issue this is than I realize. And I think the frustrating part is, I'm someone who believes herself to be a conscious consumer. Like I thought that I, 
you know, I, I thought I really understood the problem, but the deeper you get, the more nuanced it is. And especially when you add in the globalization component, that it is similar to carbon that you can't just localize your solutions. It has to be a really coordinated effort. And this could be something that works in conjunction with the United Nations. Like this could be something that has to function as a liaison between another global body. Like there are so many different pieces to this issue that go beyond U.S. consumers and certainly go beyond U.S. garment workers. And there's even locally a lot of issues to tackle there when we talk about things like pay per piece, when we talk about things like made in LA and what a scam that is. Like there's just so many, you know, there's so many like even local issues that you could get into if you really wanted to. But I mean, of course you really want to, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, the more you think about it, the bigger it is. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you you know, you, you raised an interesting point at the beginning there that, you know, you, you are a conscious consumer and yet there's so much here. I think that I'm really glad that consumers are coming around to this and uh, to, to thinking about sustainability and holding brands to account. But ultimately, I just think that this is not a problem that consumers can solve because these are really deep and systemic issues. And first of all, the companies are not being transparent with us about what's going on. And secondly, you know, if we just don't have options, um, it's really hard for us to make smart decisions here, right? And so I really think that that's why regulation, we can't let this be like a free market thing, right? You know, we know that many companies that market themselves as sustainable are doing well, and that's kind of like spurring a wave of, you know, eco-friendly companies, but it's really easy for these companies to greenwash or, or not even to be, you know, badly intentioned, but, you know, to just like focus on one tiny part of their supply chain and not the others. That's why we need external regulation here. I mean, that's why, that's why this cannot be consumer led. Um, and I think it's just, it's just like an unfair burden on consumers to be, you know, driving this change, right? Like we can advocate and we can be part of the solution, but we can't, we can't be singularly responsible, which is, which is what has been the case until now. Right. It reminds me a lot of the case for a carbon tax. Taking a lot of the pressure off of the consumer when we talk about things like calculating your own carbon footprint and what a trend that was 10 years ago and how much pressure the individual consumer had to reduce their, you know, quote unquote carbon footprint. And while that's certainly helpful, you're not the big problem. You know, you're not the British Petroleum of the world. Like you are, totally. you know, it gives you a lot of perspective to realize that while conscious consumerism is wonderful, it's certainly not the solution to our problem. Yeah, I think that we can be advocates and we can we can make our voices heard. Um, but yeah, we can't we you know we can't change the, these supply chains on our own. And I mean, I also think about things like like plastic, for instance, right? It's obviously like incredibly honorable for people to try and live these plastic-free lives. You know, bring our own water bottles everywhere and stuff like that. But I I just think that. It's, you know, plastic is just like massive global issue. Like no amount of cutting down on our plastic bottles is going to change like the infrastructure for recycling, right? Um, you know, this, there has to be, some of this needs to come from the top, you know? Right. Absolutely. And I guess on the flip side, on the plastic conversation, similar to the fashion conversation, I think there's also a lot of consumer guilt, even knowing that you can't necessarily make a huge impact on this global issue. I certainly feel bad when I have to like pick up a to-go cup or now during COVID that everything is disposable takeout containers, it's emotionally difficult for me to get over that hurdle of saying like, you know, my plastic takeout container is not going to make a huge dent compared to 
again, you know, like these big companies of the world. I do my, I do my best, but it's not just about me. On the flip side, when we talk about fashion, how do you feel like that fashion guilt kind of creeps into your life on a personal level? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that I, I see all of these like sustainable products that are on the market now. And I really think that the problem with the fashion industry is just how much stuff is produced every year. And so basically, I really think that the solution is not to, you know, to like seek out eco-friendly brands or eco-friendly materials, although those are great. Um, I really think it's to reduce the number of garments that you have, right? Get sort of get comfortable with just like owning fewer clothes and wearing them repeatedly. And, you know, and that's kind of the approach that we should take. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do, like pick the the pieces that I really like. Uh, Like for instance, um, you know, there's been this whole uh, trend. Uh, There's this company that makes what's called the nap dress, which is a dress that, you know, it's so comfortable that you can basically take a nap in it. And it looks a little bit like a, you know, the novel of like a Victorian heroine. Um, And it's just this flowing, comfortable dress. And, um, you know, I really like this dress. It it feels very comfortable. It's like perfect for the pandemic. So I bought a couple of them and I've just been wearing them repeatedly. Um, That's kind of my approach to trying to live sustainably in the world of fashion. But I, I still feel... I just have this feeling that like, it's not really doing anything, right? Because if my goal is to try and reduce the number of clothes that are manufactured every year, like what am I trying to do? I'm trying to signal to the market that I, I don't want trendy clothes. Like I just want classic clothes that I like and that fit really well. And then I, that, that, that flatter me and that, that look good. And then I can just wear repeatedly. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know if my one purchasing decision is like is like having any impact on the market i think collectively it's possible that if there's like a lot of us that are doing this that we can be signaling to the market that this is kind of the trend that we want which is like because because i know that the fashion industry is very reliant on like signals from consumers and the data speaks for itself like the the fashion industry is continuing to accelerate and increase the, the number of garments that are manufactured every year so like the fashion guilt that i have in a way is I don't like, I don't really know what to be doing to try and reduce the number of clothes. So say I, you know, have cut down from like shopping, like when I was in college, I would just, you know, go to whatever, like H&M and Zara all the time. And so I don't do that anymore. You know, I've, I've moved past that, but is it doing anything? Like, is it actually changing anything? I mean, it, is, am I just doing this because it feels good to me and that I feel like righteous about my shopping? Like that's, that's the, where the disconnect is for me. And that's why like this fashion czar concept is like, was so top of mind because it's like, what can any of us really do with our purchasing decisions? Right. Oh my goodness. You're striking a chord with me. I have to say <laughs> the last thing I'm going to say is this This idea of trendiness in the fashion industry, taking signals from consumers reminds me a lot of the trendiness of shopping secondhand and the trendiness of buying resale. And it reminds me of another article I read by you about resale in the luxury industry and how valuable that is now. And realizing that when we make sustainability trendy, it also commodifies it and it makes it harder to access. And it pushes other people out of the system. And while it's probably wonderful in some sense, there are certainly drawbacks. So got a lot of thoughts on sustainability signals in the fashion industry. Yeah, for sure. I do think that it is pretty complicated. We're recording this uh, the week that ThreadUp, which is a major uh, secondhand 
platform, it's, it's, you know, it's dubbed the largest thrift store in the world. It's, it's, it's going public and it has an IPO today. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about the secondhand market. I think that ultimately it's probably a really good thing that there's, there's so much more access to secondhand goods and that it's really easy now uh, for people to, you know, to clean out their closets and declutter their closets put and then sell these items and hopefully, you know, they'll live longer, right? Instead of getting thrown out. And then, and also that, that lots of people can now buy secondhand items, right? And the whole process is easier. I, I think that that's a good thing because we now, ideally what this means is that consumers have like a limited budget. And so instead of buying new things from fast fashion brands, they might, you know, use their dollars to buy secondhand goods, which overall means that there's like decreased demand in the firsthand market, right? That's the theory. But we actually don't have the data about that. It's possible that because there are now secondhand options on the market, that people are actually just buying more because, because, you know, it's like, if I'm, you know, if I know that I'm going to get more money for this down the, the road, maybe I'll just keep shopping, right? Um, we just don't know. Fundamentally, I think that like extending the life of products is, is essential to, you know, the broader circular system and creating a more circular system. And every item that is made with natural resources should live as long as it possibly can before it is thrown out. I think that is fundamentally a good thing. But I think it's also just important to just pay attention to unintended consequences, right? Because we just, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if this is actually going to increase consumption. And like, what are we going to do if that's the case, right? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you just dropped a lot on me. Oh my goodness. Liz, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I want to respect your time. I have to say, I've enjoyed this so much. You are a gem, I got to say. 